Hey everyone, it's Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. I know too long didn't read is a thing, but I bet too long didn't listen is a thing too. So we've taken my hour-long sit-down with Brian Stevenson about the lynching memorial and legacy museum opening in Montgomery, Alabama, and giving you about 15 minutes or so of it. Have a listen. In this country, after 9-11, we didn't say the people who perpetrated that act were criminals. Uh, We don't treat them like criminals. We said they were terrorists. They don't have the rights that people accused of crimes have. They've been held in spaces. Uh, The courts have not given them the same protections. And uh, we don't typically go to war in response to crime. We have gone to war in response to terror. And no one thinks uh, that the perpetrators of that horrific act were just trying to kill uh, the people working in uh, the World Trade Towers. This was designed to terrorize our nation, uh, to cause all of us to feel uh, fear and insecurity. And that's what terrorism does. And that's exactly what was happening to African Americans uh, from uh, the end of Reconstruction until um, the 1950s. Uh, and it's why this kind of violence uh, requires In particular talking about attention. terror and terrorism, and the fact that you had people watching these lynchings, in some cases up to or more than 10,000 people. We've seen pictures of people posing, smiling underneath a lynched person. Where's the accountability for those people who were in those photos, who watched what happened, is there any way to hold them accountable, even in, a, in, in some moral sense? Well, I think it's a really important question. I mean, I think, Jonathan, you've gotten to the heart of why we're trying to do what we do. You cannot engage, participate, look the other way uh, in the face of this kind of spectacle violence and go unharmed, go unchanged. And when we don't express that this is wrong and when we don't hold people accountable, what we do is we create a relationship to these black people that suggests that their victimization is not the same as the victimization of other people. When you hurt black people, when you batter black people, when you beat black people, it's not a crime, it's not bad, it's not even immoral. And that consciousness is, I think, at the heart of what is so troubling about our silence about this history. You know, I make the point often that the people who perpetrated these racial terror lynchings weren't the Ku Klux Klan. They didn't cover their faces. This wasn't done in, in the middle of the night. They could have buried the bodies underground uh, to mask this violence. But instead, they did the opposite. They lifted these bodies up. They invited the whole community to come and participate. They sometimes served lemonade and deviled eggs as refreshments while this torture was taking place. And they acculturated communities into accepting this kind of brutality against black people. And the legacy of that, I think, is quite tragic. So accountability for me is at the heart of what we're trying to do. We can't go on. We cannot pretend that something really destructive, something really 
uh, corruptive happened when communities came to celebrate this kind of violence. So we have to talk about it. We have to acknowledge the wrongfulness of it. I think we would benefit as a society if we expressed our shame about it. And everybody was complicit. Uh, not just the people who literally showed up and, and, and hanged the person or shot the person or drowned the person. It was all the elected officials who stood out of the way. It was the federal government who did not intervene despite hundreds and hundreds of requests that there be some kind of intervention. It was law enforcement. And um, the tragedy of that terror, which is still felt in communities today. You know, older people of color come up to me sometimes and they say, Mr. Stevenson, I get angry when I hear somebody on TV talking about how we're dealing with uh, domestic terrorism for the first time in our nation's history after 9-11. They said, we grew up with terror. We had to worry about being bombed and lynched and menaced every day of our lives. And it actually provokes them that our nation is capable of fighting a war on terror sending troops and spending billions to confront the threat posed by terror when our nation did nothing, while millions of people, African-American people, were being terrorized and traumatized by this violence, where they were sending away their loved ones because they couldn't feel safe and secure. And so accountability is at the heart of this. How do we recover from something so brutal, so tragic, so devastating as the legacy, as the evidence of, of brutal violence that is presented by these lynchings. Well, let's talk about the museum and the, and the memorial. The Legacy Museum takes you from slavery to lynching to segregation, and then, I'm not going to say ends, because the story continues, mass incarceration. Yeah. It's meant to show the line, the That's direct right. line from slavery all the way to mass incarceration. For the person who might be hearing this for the first time and thinking, oh, now come on, what does slavery have to do with mass incarceration? Explain it. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think the, the great evil of American slavery was involuntary servitude or forced labor. I really believe that the true evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference that we created to justify it. We said that black people are not people. They're not fully human. They're not evolved. The United States Supreme Court accepted that we're three-fifths human. And this ideology of white supremacy that we created to justify slavery, you know, slave owners didn't want to feel immoral. They didn't want to feel like they were doing something inhumane. So they said, no, these black people need to be slaves. We're helping them by enslaving them because they're not evolved. They're not moral. And that ideology of white supremacy for me was the true evil of American slavery. And if you read the 13th Amendment, which is passed in 1865, it talks about ending involuntary servitude and ending forced labor, but it doesn't say anything about ending this ideology of white supremacy. And because of that, I don't think slavery ends in 1865. I think it evolves. And that's the thesis you see in our museum. Slavery evolves into this era of lynching and terrorism. It's the reason why nobody cares that thousands of black people are being hanged and drowned and beaten and burned to death on the courthouse lawn while thousands cheer. It's because we have this ideology of white supremacy, we have this narrative of racial difference that that victimization doesn't matter. And then it evolves into this period of Jim Crow and segregation. I mean, how could we have possibly believed it was sensible to say, you can't love that person 
because of the color of their skin. You can't play baseball with that person. You can't uh, go to a social event with that person. You can't go to church with that person. We have statutes on our museum uh, wall that talk about how even prisons were racially segregated. Even white felons and criminals uh, had to be protected from the scourge of integration. And that consciousness can only be explained when you understand this continuing, persisting narrative of racial difference. And then we pass the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and we still don't end this narrative of racial difference. We still live today in a country where if you are black or brown, you are going to be presumed dangerous and guilty in certain situations. And it doesn't matter how kind you are, it doesn't matter how hardworking you are, it doesn't matter how talented you are. These two young men in a Starbucks in Philadelphia get arrested by the police simply because they are black. They're being presumed dangerous. And I'm a lawyer, I'm a practicing lawyer for a long time. I go into court sometimes, I have my suit and tie on, I'll sit down at defense counsel's table, and I've had judges come out and say, hey, 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 you get back out there in the hallway, you wait until your lawyer gets here. I don't want any defendants sitting in my courtroom without their lawyer. And I have to apologize, I have to say, oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't introduce myself, my name is Brian Stevenson, I am the lawyer. And then the judge will laugh and the prosecutor will laugh and I'll make myself laugh because I don't want to disadvantage my clients. And the burden of this presumption, which manifests itself in our criminal justice system, where people are wrongly accused or wrongly convicted or unfairly sentenced, is the reason why we can't talk about slavery, terrorism, segregation, without talking about mass incarceration, without talking about police violence, without talking about this contemporary presumption of dangerousness and guilt that continues to burden black and brown people. And we live in a country today where one in three black male babies is expected to go to jail or prison and nobody cares. Nobody's talking about it. It's not a political issue. It's not a campaign issue. And it is the same indifference to a crisis impacting African-American communities that existed during the time of segregation, that existed during the time of lynching, that existed during the time of slavery. And if we don't wake up, if we don't challenge that indifference, there'll be new manifestations 50 years from now, 100 years from now. And part of the vision for me of this museum is I want to create a country where 100 years from now, black and brown people are not presumed dangerous and guilty, where we acknowledge this history, where we recover from it, where we don't want to celebrate the mid-19th century by talking about how glorious and romantic it is, by simply ignoring slavery, where we don't talk about how great our country has been uh, without acknowledging this hardship, this brutality. And I just think we're not going to get there until we create spaces like this museum. I want to take you back to a story that you told. I believe it was in a TED Talk that you gave where you were invited by uh, a, a woman here and Rosa Parks was coming. Yeah, yeah. And she wanted to hear all yeah. about it. And then she, you said, Rosa Parks told you that you would be tired, tired, tired by the work you were undertaking here at the Equal Justice Initiative. Yeah. And then the woman who invited you said that you needed to be brave, brave, brave. Yeah. Where do you draw the strength to be brave yeah. and to not be tired yeah. when what you're doing is, it must just sap you yeah. of 
all kinds of, yeah. of energy. Yeah. Well, you know, I feel really fortunate in some ways to be doing this work in Montgomery because when you live in a place like Montgomery, when you work in a place like Montgomery, it's impossible to ignore that you're standing on the shoulders of so many people who have done so much more with so much less. You know, um, you know, I sit in this room and I look out that window and sometimes when I get really overwhelmed and really challenged, I'll look out the window and I'll think about the people who were trying to do what I'm trying to do 60 years ago. And what they had to frequently say is, my head is bloodied but not bowed. I've never had to say that. And as difficult as the task that we have to face, as hard as the work is, it's been made easier because enslaved people found a way to endure and survive. And when I think about the kind of courage it took to do that, when I think about the kind of commitment it took to do that, I just don't feel like I'm entitled. I don't even feel like I'm allowed to say, I'm tired, I can't do this, I can't do that. I feel like I have to do it because I'm being watched by the souls and spirits of the enslaved. I really do feel that this street, it's so historic, right? Down three blocks from here is where enslaved people were brought. They will be paraded up this street. We're on the site of a former slave warehouse. Uh, all around here are spaces where people were lynched. Rosa Parks uh, was pulled off that bus three blocks from here. Dr. King's church is this. I, I feel like I'm being watched by the souls and spirits of the enslaved, the lynched, the segregated, and with their sacrifice, with their struggle, with their heroism and their courage and their dignity, I can't actually stop. I can't not do what has to be done. And the beautiful thing is that when we actually do something that I hope is good, like this museum, that I hope is good, like this memorial, I don't just feel watched by those souls and spirits, I feel encouraged. I hear them maybe saying, okay, you keep doing that. That's a good thing. Now that you've heard the eloquence of Brian Stevenson, you can find the full interview on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, WashingtonPost.com slash podcast, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts.